welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Box with your host and CEO of Babelbox, Sherry Langberg. Sherry interviews the world's biggest brands, agencies, and influencers to uncover their influencer marketing secrets to success. Go behind the scenes and learn how you can make influencer marketing part of your social media playbook. Subscribe to Beyond the Box at podcast.babelbox.com. Listen to all of your favorite episodes and follow us on Instagram for more influencer marketing inspiration. We're here today to talk about events and affiliate marketing, two topics where Sean Collins, founder of Affiliate Summit, is a pioneer and is here to share his insights. Welcome, Sean. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Could you tell us how Affiliate Summit got its start? Yes. So it's not a really conventional kind of start. Back in 2003, I had been on the third or fourth year of helping this, this guy run his event called Affiliate Force, which was taking place initially in Miami and then it started taking place on cruises. And as I was doing it, I was offering up a, a lot of help with driving people there and advice on how to do things. And I, I just written a book, so I had a pretty good list of people. So I was referring probably about half of the 200 people he was having on board the, on the cruise ships. At the same time, um, there was a woman, Missy Ward, who I had met through that conference, and she was helping as well with the travel, and we were both just really doing it on a volunteer basis, and we became sort of disenfranchised because he was, we were giving ideas on how they could improve it and, and make different changes, and he just told us basically to, we should know our place, and, and he knows how to do things better than we do, so we were both frustrated, and basically over a, on a cruise ship over a couple of drinks, the two of us decided we should make our own competing conference. And it didn't make sense on any level because we really had zero money to invest and absolutely no experience running events. But we were both just agitated enough to, with our being brushed off by this guy that we just figured, let's go give it a try. We wanted to have something for the industry. We went back after that conference and had a phone call and back in May of 93, and we decided on the name and got the domain. And really the 8 or $10 or whatever on GoDaddy for that domain was the only investment we had. Otherwise, we just did it all ourselves with just using the hosting we already had for different sites and, and our own, I was using Aweber for email and just using all those different services I already had for other things. Mm -hmm. And we just um, built it from scratch without any kind of, we just basically went to make an event the way that we thought they should be instead of how they had been running something more interactive and more fun. And we got our start with the, in the November of that year in 2003, I was working in around, I guess it was 23rd Street and Park Avenue in New York City at the time. And we were trying to figure out a way we could get a, a cheaper free venue. And I, a friend of mine told me that they at Baruch College, which was just a couple mm -hmm. blocks away, they would um, let you come in there and run events if you gave some free tickets to the marketing students. So we went in there and we were able to get completely free all of the space and the AV and everything just in exchange for 10 free tickets. And so we just had to pay for some coffee and, and lunches that day. So basically, we got our start with zero investment, $10 investment, and then we just we were selling tickets before we had to pay our bills, so it was profitable from the start. That is and, amazing. Yeah, and then within a, a year, we, we did a competing cruise against him in 2004, and his never happened because I was recruiting so many of his attendees, and they all just moved over to us, and so he was out of business within a year of us starting. Hmm. Did you ever speak to him again? No, he... <laughs> He basically ripped off a lot of the people in the industry and he was originally from South Africa and he just, he was living in Miami at the time. He just disappeared and, and left a lot of 
companies hanging who paid for booths and tickets and things. Wow. So he just sort of disappeared. And how did you get, how big did Affiliate Summit get to? How many conferences, how many attendees? How did you get to that level? So these days, there are four events in um, Las Vegas, New York City, Singapore, and Amsterdam. Across in any given year, it's over 10,000 people going to the four different events. Hmm. We just started really slow and steady. We, we didn't want to get in over our heads and, and also just take on the big risk because trade shows is a tremendous risk with all of the contracts with hotels and everybody. We are just growing incrementally. We went from 200 at Baruch to 230 on the cruise ship to, I guess, in the 400s for our, our next land conference. And we just kept growing slowly and steadily. And people are always telling us how we, um, we were making a mistake by not growing faster. But we, um, we wanted to, a lot of it was optics for us. We wanted to always have a crowded room. And we, and also we like to sell out each time. So people were always in a frenzy and we were, they were buying tickets earlier the next cycle. Mm-hmm. So it was really just, um, we just always had very controlled growth and, and, I, and I guess somewhat artificial sellouts because we kept it slower, smaller. Very smart. So you talk about risks with events, which is timely given what we're going through right now. What do people do? Like, what are your predictions now for the event industry? How's it affecting anything you want to share? Well, I guess uh, one thing is um, we sold in 2017 and we're still on board until this July is co-CEO is my, my friend Missy and I, but, but I am very glad that I'm not a event owner any longer. <laughs> I would be completely flipping out right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I see it playing out um, with South by Southwest here in Austin. And uh, similar to them, we had an Whenever the people signed up for a pass, the agreement stated that they they had a clause if we ever had to postpone, there were no refunds, they would get a ticket to that future event whenever it was. Thankfully, we never had to exercise that because I'm seeing people very angry towards South by Southwest. And it's not their, yeah, it's not their fault. I mean, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, the city told them they couldn't do it, but the the customers don't want to have that money sitting in limbo, especially if they're small companies and they can't really. Mm They wanted to either go and do business or get that money back. So people are saying they're going to do chargebacks, which I'm not sure. I'm assuming they'll probably rule in the customer's favor there. Or else they, I think they'll just have a lot of animosity towards the brand. And it's going to, even if they can pull off coming back next year, I think it's going to take a hit because people are angry at them. It's really, I mean, you could understand both sides. It's awful. What, what are your predictions for the event industry? I think probably a lot of the events will probably disappear just because they, the early ones, like for us, we didn't make a profit for our first year and a half. Mm-hmm. So I think if I had deferred another year, I don't know if I would stay in business and keep working for free. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the smaller ones will do that. But the ones that are, have more capital, like the company that bought Affiliate Summit, Clarion Events, they have a couple hundred events and, and they're very well funded. So I don't think that they have any issue with this. They certainly not optimal, but they can, they can work through it. But I think the the smaller mom and pop kind of conferences, I think, are going to really suffer. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, you know, I'm seeing a lot, like obviously leveraging technology to turn conferences and trade shows into virtual events. Are you hearing and seeing a lot of that? What types of technologies could companies use? I hear people predicting that. I And I know there are a lot of pluses to virtual events. For me, we've always sold a, a unique in-person experience. And I think that, and I've 
seen a lot of different virtual events and I, they just can't really copy that. I guess they can for the distance learning part of it. Mm -hmm. We can just sit there and watch a speaker in front of a podium, but the, the actual networking where all the relationships happen, I don't see how that is realistic that it could replace it. But I'm sure that we'll see a lot more platforms that are more robust to make virtual events more of a real feel like an in-person event. Because a lot of them I've gone to in the past, they've been really nothing more than a glorified webinar. Yeah. It's interesting. There should be a lot of uh, new, dis new disruptive things coming out of this whole thing. So, Yeah. And I definitely. guess with a, a lot of people that are in Silicon Valley in New York, if they're going to just be stuck, not really going into offices, they'll have a lot of times to brainstorm. <laughs> You're right. I didn't think of that. Thanks for making me laugh. So moving on to the affiliate topic, you know, recently, like I've known what affiliate is, but believe it or not, I would say eight out of 10 of our partners don't know what affiliate marketing is. Could you please explain it for us? Yeah. And I think that's not surprising because my family would re-ask me every time I would see them. And even after I've been doing it since 97 and still, most people I know still don't understand when I try to tell them. So so I think it's fair enough that a lot of people wouldn't know. But um, I guess the, somebody said one time that, that basically affiliate marketing comes down to selling products you don't own to people you don't know. So I guess that sort of distills it. But uh, I guess an example would be that if, um, if somebody had a, a blog, say, about their favorite sports team, they could, um, just writing about different news and, and opinions and things, they could run ads from, say, Fanatics or Amazon to sell hats and shirts and jerseys as well as joining up affiliate programs for Ticketmaster and StubHub to sell tickets. And in those cases, the affiliate programs would pay them. They would give them a unique link for tracking, and then they would, as well as the creative, and they would pay them either a flat fee or percentage of a sale for anything they referred to them. Mm -hmm. So now here's where it gets complicated. What is the difference between that and today's influencers? I'd say it, it mostly comes down to the way that they're compensated. So with a lot of influencers being paid on a, a set fee for promoting while affiliates are all paid on performance. So otherwise, it's somewhat of a similar deal, except that the, I guess it's, it's more preferable for the, the influencers since they, they get the, the money theoretically, whether or not they actually perform, whereas the affiliates only get it if they do perform. So that's, that gives more advantage to the advertisers. Mm-hmm. How do you think, because we have influencers producing tons of content, and uh, how do you think, you know, a big question we get is, what's the ROI? Influencer content doesn't drive sales. What could companies do to move the needle with influencer content to drive a sale? I think the, the biggest factor there is just to be very careful picking who you're working with, since there are, there are some shady characters that have been exposed over time that go out there and buy followers and likes and comments just to game the system. Mm -hmm. So I guess... It just has to be based on reputation and, and making sure that they seem to be authentic and real. And I, I've seen some tools out there so you can sort of sniff out if people bought a bunch of Twitter or Instagram followers and, and see if they're real or not. And I guess you can also just eyeball it and see what kind of interactivity they have and see if it seems like it's real with the comments and, and likes. I guess you can't really measure the likes, but the comments see if they just seem to be something they bought on Fiverr or Mechanical Turk versus real people talking if they have established accounts, the people that are commenting. So going back to this, so are there any other criteria when looking at an influencer? Because the big thing I think is 
were traditional affiliates just better? At first, they were serving banner ads and things like that, but aren't a lot of them like really savvy SEO experts where they're getting like tons of qualified traffic to a landing page and then turning that into a deal? Yeah, well, I guess um, yeah, affiliates sort of a an umbrella title, but it, some people are doing SEO, some are doing paid search or mm-hmm. strictly social or a regular content creation in text or like videos and podcasts. There's so many different specialties that, that affiliate marketing just sort of is all encompassing for. So, um, and, and then there are some of the companies that, especially in the, the coupon and like rebate kind of business, like a Retail Me Not, where they're, they're giant public companies that have hundreds of employees and it's all around affiliate marketing. Mm-hmm. So it really varies. So now I know that there's a lot of platforms, right? Like Rakuten, like you're talking about some of them and Linkshare, which and Commission Junction, but one that keeps coming up in the affiliate world is rewards in the influencer world, sorry, is reward style. Are they doing something different? Like what is reward style doing that every influencer is talking about them and using them? Yeah, so it's sort of a different animal where it's a, instead of being a like a, a regular merchant or advertiser. They sort of act both as the the affiliate and the advertiser, and so they they take some steps to make it easier for the affiliates to or the influencers to work with them uh, than it is for they they do some of the legwork that an affiliate would have to do otherwise. But then the the catch there is that that if an affiliate's working directly with some of these retailers, then they it can be more lucrative for them. But then they they are doing more of the work, mm-hmm. and um and there are some other companies that that don't necessarily target influencers like skim links and um, some other ones where they, you can just basically put a script on your site and it'll just turn a lot of the text into links that can be monetized. But the, but then they're taking a portion of what you would have gotten if you went direct. What are the payouts? Like is like what percent is a regular compensation on, on a, like for an affiliate? Is it 10%, 30? It varies widely depending on what you're selling. So like, if you're selling computers, you're looking at like maybe one percent, but then most of the products on Amazon range from about five to ten percent. And then if you're going up to something that's sold digitally, like a piece of software, you can get in the neighborhood of fifty percent or more. Mm-hmm. I think when I ran Weight Watchers, our percentage was thirty percent, but I I don't know if I'm correct in my memory. Yeah, I don't even remember for them, but I but I guess for that, like I maybe that that seems almost more like a the same kind of model as hosting companies where you know that you have the recurring billing as long as they stay as a customer. So so a lifetime value, you can sort of project that and, and pay the affiliates that much more. And then I guess I have a dual question, but I'll start with like, if a company or a brand is in an affiliate platform, could they join another affiliate platform? So let's say there's one that has traditional affiliates. Could they join another one that's not like, that has different types of affiliates, AKA influencers? Yeah, I guess the... Um, as long as the the one thing there that becomes complicated for some of the companies is if they have if one company has programs or affiliate or influencer setups with more than one network because then it, it could lead sometimes to attribution issues and and which one actually referred it because mm-hmm. cookies might get a little bit goofy but otherwise it's um it was a thing back and it was never mandated for affiliates or influencers, I guess, where they, they couldn't belong to more than one network or platform, but, but advertisers were restricted back maybe 15, 20 years ago. They tried to keep them from being at more than one, especially Linkshare. They, they were pretty tough on it. But uh, these days, it's all very relaxed. So 
So really, I, people can work with as many as they need to or want to. And mm-hmm. I've had the accounts with with really, and I don't do anything fashion wise, so I haven't worked with reward style. But I I have a half dozen different accounts on affiliate networks just so I can promote whatever I want to with the companies that I want to put on my sites. Mm-hmm. From the right, but not from a from a brand perspective. For me as an affiliate, I yeah I've joined I've joined up at all these different places. Right, right, yeah. But aren't these affiliate plat like networks like like CJ's and Linkshares? Aren't they like there's a, like a fee like that's pretty expensive? No, just for the advertisers for the affiliates, there's no fee. Right, but for the advertisers, yeah. So yeah, so if they were to go and and be on two or three different networks, then they're paying that fee over and over again. And and I had, for many years I managed affiliate programs, and some of them insisted on being on multiple platforms. I tried to persuade them against doing that, and they never wanted to listen. Mm-hmm. And there was never really that much of a, a big lift because most affiliates are on all the platforms. So yeah, the, they hop around. Are, yeah, yeah. So there, there are some that have a preference for one, and they have some kind of loyalty there, but but that's not very common. So it, there's not really a a big lift if you're on two or three different networks. And there's the minimums that you have to you have to pay minimums and fees, and it could get pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's in my opinion, it's not worth it, and I've. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot more consolidation in the last couple of years. Like I had, like Fanatics that I mentioned earlier, they were on, um, I think, definitely two, maybe three different networks. And now they've consolidated all and they're just down to one now. Yeah. Well, I will say that, you know, kind of to your point earlier, I stayed away from doing performance basis marketing with our influencers. But the reason my questions are so pointed is that we did just turn on an affiliate play. So we do have 30,000 influencers that, you know, I don't think that they're traditional affiliates who are in all these networks. It's more like cross categories of different types of verticals, but really people who started out as Instagrammers or YouTubers or bloggers. And so we just turn that on. So it's uh, your, your responses have been very helpful to us. So thank you. Great. Yeah. And, and there is so much crossover too. So that there's been very, a lot of influences coming to Affiliate Summit as speakers or just as attendees. And then, so I'd, I've seen a lot of people go back and forth or do hybrids, do some affiliate and some influencer, yeah. like flat fee stuff. And, and I guess some dating back to maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago when there was like the, the big mommy blogger era. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were getting flat fees from GM and different companies to put paid posts. And, and after that dried up, a lot of them all shipped on over to affiliate marketing strictly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, I think for the smaller ones, you know, affiliate is kind of an easy way for them to try to get content that they could write about and also try to earn, you know, start out their careers. But then for the bigger ones, sometimes, you know, they're busy and they just need something quick and, you know, here's a, a hole in their editorial calendar and they, they do it. So it's surprising, but they're doing yeah. it. Yeah. And for any influencer that can merit the the big fees versus performance from affiliate, I would, I don't see why they would consider affiliate, mm-hmm. but definitely for the the folks that are getting started up and growing that have to prove themselves, then that's a, a good way. And, and also it gives them some reputation with their followers if they have the impression that they are sponsored by some big companies that they joined as affiliate programs. It's more organic, you mean? I think it just, uh, as far as the optics of it, it looks good if, if people have the impression that they're sponsored by, by some of these companies just because they have affiliate li- yeah. ads on there. Well, what's interesting, you say that the smaller ones are, why would the big ones do it? But I was, one of our influencers was talking about a post she did for a Gucci belt and it was an affiliate play and she took it down for controversial reasons. But she said that 
she didn't need to. She makes a lot of money, but she took it down. But she said that that one belt with the affiliate link was making her like $3,000 a month. Yeah, and that's great. And the nice thing there too is that if you do say one post as an influencer and you get that set feed and the chance that it could have taken off and maybe been, been viral and you could have had ongoing revenue for, I guess, maybe in perpetuity, mm-hmm. as long as people are still going to that versus the one-time payment. Yeah. But it's definitely more of a grind having to get it one transaction at a time though. Yeah. And there's also the arbitrage in it right now with media boosting on Instagram and uh, Facebook, you could technically <laughs> boost your own posts to get more follower, to, to get more exposure on that post and see how it turns more into more sales. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I do that pretty frequently, mostly just on Facebook because mm-hmm. since it's just more of a hassle to get a click on Instagram, but I, for a lot of my affiliate sites, I'll, I'll boost posts and, um, and sometimes just a little small thing just to move a little bit, just like $2 or so, but otherwise some bigger boosts. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, again, so helpful. I'm going to conclude with one question that I always ask my guilty pleasure. Name an influencer you love to follow, but hate to admit that you do. I guess probably the top one there would be Gary Vaynerchuk. Me too. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've known him for a long time. He spoke at Affiliate Summit back in 2009, but his his whole message, it doesn't really resonate with me. And I have actually written some things about the how like the whole hustle porn kind of culture is just sort of corrosive to people. <laughs> Why? And just because it... Um, People take pride in really just abandoning having any kind of life and just focusing solely on work. And I, and I did that for a long time. And I, I used to tout how I would barely spend time with my family and was just up all the time just working. Mm-hmm. And, I, um, and so I, in 2010, I moved from New Jersey to Texas. And I really wanted to recast my lifestyle and, and start having some kind of lifestyle. And so I started going out for long lunches and meeting people. And like, I literally just didn't really go out with friends at all for about 10 years. I was just so focused on building my company and working. Welcome and to also, my world. I might have to leave New Jersey now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and but all of a sudden I started just going out and I would just go on a hike once in a while midday or, and meeting people for dinners and things. And I, I made a really effort, really big effort to, to just meet people and go to meetups and things. And uh, I used to work say till six, then be with my family for a few hours and go back to work for like a second shift from about 9, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. And I, I cut that out, that late shift there and started just doing more recreation and meeting people even during my regular full-time day. And I noticed that I didn't have any reduction in productivity because I, I guess I was just so exhausted and like I'd have a movie on in the background at, at midnight and I probably mostly watched that and wasn't even doing anything. But I, um, I took so much pride in the fact that I was just working all the time and sleeping four hours. But, but I, at the end of that, it just felt very unfulfilling. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, a few years ago, there was a, an event for entrepreneurs in Hoboken, New Jersey, and Gary Vaynerchuk was speaking, and he was, had like rock star status there. And he was describing his day, how he never really watches TV or movies or anything. He doesn't really do much for fun. He just... He gets all of his fun out of working, and there, there are all these people there that were just giving a standing ovation about basically saying that he, he didn't really have any indulgences or any fun, and, like, and it, it just seemed warped to me that these people were screaming and cheering about the idea of doing nothing but work. Yeah, I think he's gone back recently in the past year or so, and he's really refining that messaging, like kind of correcting it. I do think 
that the messaging that he gives out to startups and not the work hustle stuff, but, you know, just go for it. If you're 55 or 60, like, just do it. I, I think he's, it's kind of like a micro mentality. You're not good in school. Like not everyone's good in school. Go get it, you know, like go work and do something else. Like, so that's the part of him that I love, but I am guilty of, you know, falling into that, you know, what, where you were 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I still, I watch his daily stuff on Instagram and everything, and I, I like a lot of his stuff there. But yeah, I think his personality and his work ethic aren't really something that people can replicate. Mm-hmm. And, and also, there were some advantages there, too. He, he certainly worked hard, but his father did have a business that he was able to participate in versus starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it, it is a very neat story, because I used to live walking distance from his old wine library, and I would go there. That was my liquor store when it was just a little typical like three aisle liquor store it's 10 minutes from my house oh is it yeah yep. i used to live right across the 24 and summit and i would walk over there mm-hmm. yeah he was and, just yeah go ahead sorry but it's amazing the the place is now it's a cathedral <laughs> he was here for thanksgiving and i dragged my eight-year-old to go meet him on his birthday my son's birthday yeah and i'm like oh maybe there'll be like 15 people there we waited for two hours in line oh yeah and i did the same thing for a book signing there a couple of years ago with my oldest daughter and we, yeah, we waited for a couple hours to to snake through there and go meet him. But yeah. he's still so so great and gracious with people because I had, I hadn't seen him in many years at that point, and he gave me a big hug and was asking me what was going on and everything. Mm-hmm. And I and I I wish I had that that gift because I I have a hard time recalling people that I that I had an hour long lunch with a year ago. <laughs> and, and but he's he's just very talented that way with people, and and he just really knocks himself out with with work. I, I love some of his, his more recent things too, that are more entry level, like helping people to go to garage sales and try to get things to resell for profit and stuff. Yeah. And I like his message about kindness and kindness and employees and kindness and your team. So yeah, yeah. That, that is so very important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful, amazing insight uh, and very timely and topical. So I really appreciate it and best of luck to you. Great. Thanks so much. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Beyond the Box, produced by Tough Monkey Entertainment. Beyond the Box is brought to you by Babblebox with your host, Sherry Langbert. Visit podcast.babblebox.com for more episodes and influencer marketing secrets.